Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in here every week with some wonderful women in the Philadelphia area who are doing some great things and coming in to share their stories with us. I wanted to give a quick mention. If you're listening and you have any questions for me or any of my guests, please feel free to shoot me an email to srocco233 at gmail. Today, joining me in the studio is uh, a wonderful woman who has over 17 years of experience with executive consulting, but she's also written a wonderful book um, called Head Trash 911, and her name is Tish Squillero, and she is CEO of Candor Consultant and consulting rather, and author of Head Trash 911. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm very excited. Thank you. Um, I wanted to get right into um, finding out a little bit about you and your background, growing up in Brooklyn, your years there as a child, and some of your schooling. Can you talk about that a little bit? Certainly. I love going down memory lane because it really does carve out who you become as you grow up. So I grew up in Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Uh, I have a sister who is three years younger. Her name is Christine. And I went to an all-girl Catholic school. And why that's um, interesting is because I think that's what's going to happen with my daughter. So it's funny how life repeats itself. Loved growing up in Brooklyn. It was a very family-oriented town. Um, Everybody knew each other in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You really sat out on the stoop and chit-chatted with your neighbor. We're very different today. You have to drive everywhere. You don't see anyone. Right. Uh, And I grew up really as a regular kid, you know, looking to figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And I was always looking for the next thing I can do. So I'm one of those people who always strive to achieve things that may not already be done or know isn't in my vocabulary. And I think that's what's carved out my uh, future career is that I look at things that way, too. And I help my clients look at things that way, too. Yeah. So you've always had a natural curiosity. You weren't kind of... One of the words that I read about in your book is complacency. And I would imagine you were never complacent as a kid. I was not. And that's a bad thing, too, sometimes. Because, you know, you do have to smell the roses and enjoy. And my husband today will always say, let's celebrate this before we look at what we're doing next. Because we can enjoy this because we did accomplish this. This is exciting. Even if we take an hour, I still want us to celebrate. And because of that, I mean, you know, it's a balance in your life. And I'm always looking to balance it. Right. Because I am rather driven. And once I accomplish a goal that I had a lot of passion behind, I really don't stop for a second to recognize it. Yeah. But And you do you do remind yourself to do that more often as, we, as you am. get older. I am. I think it is age, though I not like to think of myself as getting older, but we do. I have learned to really pace myself a little bit better. Good. Um, tell me, what was uh, some of the jobs you had in high school? So high school, interesting. I was one of those kids who really studied and was conscientious. I would get nervous when test day came. And on weekends, I worked because when I chose the high school that I went to, it was a little costly for my family. So as soon as you can get working papers, I got a job in a local flea market selling lingerie. So I know all about lingerie today. (laughs) And I would work Friday nights right from school all the way till 10 p.m. and then all day Saturday and all day Sunday. Wow. So I did that because it was, you know, a school I chose. And I didn't want the stress on my family because it didn't have to be the school I went to, but it was the school I wanted to go to. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I contributed. Right. So I worked through high school. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, misconceptions about all girls high schools is that, you know, you don't know how to interact with boys. 
Um, my daughter went to an all-girls high school, Mount St. Joe, and there's plenty of interaction with the boys' schools and, you know, um, activities outside of school. What's your thoughts on that? Um, I do believe, well, that's how I grew up. So I did uh, find that I interacted just fine with, with boys. Um, and I do think it also helped me stay focused on education. And I needed that because my eye would wander and I think I would get distracted. So for me, I really enjoyed all girls. I loved the uniform. I didn't have to worry about getting dressed. And as my daughter approaches that same age, I think she'll go to uh, an all girl school. And we took her for the tour and she loved it. So I'm really happy. It looks like that's where she'll land in sixth grade. And which school did you, or, or is she looking to go we, to? We probably go to Notre Dame. Oh, Notre Dame, um, yeah. As the school, one of our neighbors has their daughter there, and she went there, so there's a little history. And I didn't grow up in Pennsylvania, so I don't have an allegiance anywhere, and I'm right. looking for building one. Yes. And because the girls are friendly and they'd be able to take the bus together, it's all the big important reasons why they're choosing it. I right. like it because I think it's got the right values and integrity that I grew up with at the school I went to, so right. it reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great, great um, atmosphere, um, one that really allows girls, young women— to be in their, you know, their uh, a classroom and learning and not have distractions of the boys. Well, there is peer pressure. Not that girls are not catty and create trouble, right? Um, because we do, but I do think it's different. Mm -hmm. I do think that when they bond, they actually bond well. Right. So, as I say to my daughter now, not everyone's going to be your friend. That's right. You'll make lots of acquaintances, and then they'll have a handful of really selective friends that are good for you, and you're good for them. That's fine. You don't have to be popular. I was not popular. I had a small group of friends. I was not known by everyone, and I was fine with that. And then to me, that's how I am with everything else, too. I don't need to be in the in crowd. I don't have to keep up with the Joneses. I really don't care. As long as I have what I need and the people around me that I care about, I don't care if it's two people. I yeah. still only have about two really good friends. Okay. That's wonderful, and that's a really good example for your daughter. I wonder, if um, have you always been working since she was born? Uh, yes. And and. What types of conversations do you have with her about being a, a woman who's working outside the home and, and what that does for you? I don't think they know any differently. Funny enough, um, my kids always say, Mom, are you working tonight? It's a weekend. Do we get you full-time or are we sharing you with your job? Um, I think for them, they are very independent, both my kids. I have a boy and a girl. Mm -hmm. And I could just see they're very self-sufficient already. I mean, I've already gone past. I'm not allowed to help them pick their clothes out. They shower on their own. They make their beds, which I do cringe because it's never as I would make it. But again, I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning to look at everything all just thrown together because Good. it is their attempt. Good. So I think they are becoming pretty self-sufficient because both my husband and I work. I've always worked. He's always worked. And you kind of make do by your surroundings. Right. And we are role models for them. We set examples. That's and right. Berlin knows I own my own business, mm -hmm. and I wrote a book, and I put both my kids in the book, and they're very excited to see their names in the book, and they tell everyone, my mom wrote a book. I don't think they know what that means, but they also tell them, buy the book, and I'm right. like, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, they do see that, you know, your oyster's out there. Go get it. I don't think they ever think there's something they can have, yeah. which is a problem at times because they think we can buy it for them, and right. we have to teach them we can't. <laughs> right, right, we don't right. get that thing that everyone else has, but... I don't think they're ever afraid. I mean, they travel with us since they've been really young. They go to New York City on the, you know, lots of times. They're very comfortable in New York City. They're not afraid. So I think my kids have been able to really adopt and adapt well to the lifestyle we have. Yeah, I think that's terrific because a lot about this show, it, you know, the whole reason for sharing these stories from women like you is to help 
not only women that are out, you know, trying to find um, their way in business, but for the younger girls to uh, kind of show them that even women who are accomplished have had some challenges uh, and some self-doubt. Tell me a little bit about what what your cha- you were very driven and, you know, you had a wonderful upbringing, but what were some of the challenges for you as a young girl that, you know, held you back a little bit from, from doing those things that you wanted to do? I don't know if it helped me back, but it definitely had me pause. Uh, my parents, who I love to death and very close with, um, really thought I would be the cookie cutter fit, right? So I grew up in an Italian family. Uh, maybe you work, maybe you don't. Maybe you drive, maybe you don't. I mean, all those things that, you know, today are like you are laughable. But I will never forget when I got accepted to college, it was outside of our area. It wasn't in Brooklyn. It wasn't in Manhattan. It was in Pennsylvania. Right. And my parents didn't know Ivy League. I didn't know Ivy League. I had no idea what that meant. I did not grow up with those surroundings. And when I said to them, I'm going to this school called the University of Penn, my mother started crying, not from glee and happiness, but why are you leaving? I don't understand. What's wrong with you? Why are you going to this Pennsylvania to that school? Now, fast forward today, she's very proud and will tell all her friends, but it was that inroads that I had to actually argue with her why this was a good decision. And then when I graduated... I opened up my first business and I remember calling them and say, I've graduated. I'm excited. I'm going to actually do my own thing. I'm going to open up this daycare and boarding for dogs. And again, what's wrong with you? You went to this school. You're supposed to get a degree. Can't you get a job and work for somebody? Yeah. <laughs> I said, mom, I, I, I have this vision. I want to be able to do something and it's not out here. So I'm going to open one. Right. And that was the beginning of me realizing I probably am best owning my own business because I have a drive and a, tenaciousness of when I don't see something, I'd like to go out there and do it. And the dog daycare was to support people who had animals and no place for them. That's why I opened it. There's always a reason. It's not a luxury. It's because there's a need for it. And if there's a need for it, I'm going to go do it because I need it. So selfishly, I needed a dog daycare for when I was going to work. And But my parents, you know, if I listened to them, I probably wouldn't have started the business, maybe wouldn't went to Penn and wouldn't have done all the things that were outside the comfort zone of the life in which we lived. That's right. And, and that's, I, that was a different generation. It was. And it was, you know, things which I'm not afraid of risk. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I realized about myself because you'd go to your parents for comfort and guidance and I had to tell them, no, this is right. I know this is right. I yeah. need to do this. Right. And from that now, you know, obviously you grow up, my parents are very proud, but it was interesting to watch the dynamic of me convincing them that I was doing the right thing. Right. Because I really was questioning, am I doing the right thing? Right. Because now I had no one to really go to. Is this the right thing to do? Should I be opening up a business? Yeah. Well, you really let your spirit, I mean, you have the, uh, uh, I can see from the moment I met you, this spirit of um, looking around and seeing what needs to be done and I'm going to do it and I'm going to take care of it. And when you, you know, you have a parents from a different generation who, perhaps envisioned you doing something, you know, a little bit more similar to, to what the path that they took. You have a job for so many years and then you retire. Yeah. And that was unheard of to have more than one job. Right. Why are you leaving? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't that work out? What's wrong with you? Right. I was always exactly. like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. That's hard. That's a hard thing to um, kind of put out of your mind, um, which, gosh, you know, this, this book um, that you've written, I think is so smart and so um, easy to understand and relatable. Um, and we're going to get to that uh, in a few minutes. But tell me about, so after the doggy daycare, 
what was your next uh, step? What was your next move in business? Well, with the dog daycare, we had it for 13 years. So I opened it with another young lady named Charity Brennan, who's a dear friend of mine still till today. And uh, I realized that it wasn't making the the funds. You need to pay back your school loans because I paid for all my school. And I needed to get a job. So she decided to stay with the animals, which was her passion. She's a big animal lover. And I had the degree. So she goes, you go out and get the job. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I did a variety of jobs. I sold payroll. I sold loans that I wouldn't sell to anyone, but they were loans that were really bad ratings. um, And I couldn't live (laughs) with that. So I got fired because I couldn't sell them. Um, And I did all those odd jobs trying to find my way. And it was interesting because... I had a very nice resume that said I went to a very good school, but on my resume, Doggy World Daycare was the first job. And people kind of put the question mark, the eyeball tilted, and they met me and thought, oh, you're not what I expected. So after a while, I started to make a joke and said, did you expect flannel and hay that I was off <laughs> yeah. of a farm? And I got somehow lucky where someone took a liking to my tenaciousness, my style, and I became a recruiter, which I didn't know what it was. But I started to work in a recruiting outfit helping people find jobs. Right. And from that, I got promoted to selling the service of a company using a recruiter. Right. And eventually, I placed myself at a company where I became their head of HR. And I knew absolutely nothing about HR. So God bless them for giving me the shot. And I kind of found my way. And I realized that I liked the human capital. I liked the people engagement, but I wasn't very good at the compliance and the rules part of it. (laughs) And I loved the development and the real allowing an organization to scale by its people. Mm -hmm. And I started to focus my attention more on that. People development, learning development, what is the synergies of behavior? How do behaviors really matter when you're looking at skill sets? And I morphed my business from that. I um, decided to go on my own after the business started to decline with the dot-coms issue in 2000. And I became a consultant at that point, thinking I was just going to get another job. Never thought that it would stick. So since 2000, I've been on my own with my own business. Now, it's morphed in name. Mm -hmm. It was Metis, and then I had a partnership with folks, and then back on my own. But I always did the same thing. My focus was always on individual development, people, org design, and today, you know, Candor is just a business that's morphed over time based on where I found my niche and where I thought I brought the most value to my client base. Mm-hmm. And that's how it formed. You know, we should mention that your your major was um, history and psychology. Yes, by accident, yeah. no less. Again, <laughs> nothing I've done was chosen with a plan. That's Tish. But I had to take courses um, that I thought I was going to be an attorney. So I tried to take things that were more geared towards what legal and as I was taking the law, pre-law classes, I hated them. Yeah. And, but I also had to finish, and I was paying for school. So there was no, let's add an extra year to change my electives. Yeah. Uh, I kind of had to make do, and history kind of was at least enjoyable, and I could finish. And psychology fit in my coursework. Yeah. But little did I know that psychology would become the, the, the basis right. to which my career would actually form. But yeah. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. I mean, I think psychology, gosh, I almost feel that... Anyone who's looking to be in business should have some type of uh, experience or or education in psychology because they're very, very connected. Well, it's about relationships and it's about self-awareness. So you will never um, do wrong by yourself by having some sorts of uh, psychology in your education. But mine was my minor, so a lot of it. So I'm very head shrunk in a lot of things. And it does help as you work 
to help others because you have to feel out where their comfort zone is. And mm -hmm. I think by learning the different behavior types and where people have anxiety, it has helped me. Yeah. The funny thing is I didn't know it when I did it. So as you look back, if you only, you know, somebody must guide us through life because we make some decisions at the moment that we really don't know what they mean, but later they somehow really, really work out. Yeah. You know, I, um, it's interesting that you say that. I, it seems to me, listening to some of your stories, that you did have some mentors in your life, people that saw something in you and then said, you know, you, you really should try this. You, you, you would really be good at this. Can you talk about any people in specifically that you would consider a mentor for you? No, it's you? a great point. It, it, though it didn't work out that they said that, they would say, no, no, you won't be able to do that. So it was actually a little different. It motivated me because I'll never forget when I applied to Penn, I worked in a firm in New York City, a law firm, which is why I thought I'd be a lawyer because that was my real first job outside the flea market. That's what I thought I'd do. Mm -hmm. And I was applying to Penn and, you know, the gentleman said, oh, you'll never get into Penn. That's an Ivy League school. You should be happy with something here locally. Mm. That was, was enough like, to push you, right? I was like, interesting. Oh, okay. Oh, really? So, yes, I think I have had mentorship along the way to allow me not to fall off the rails. Mm -hmm. But I think the motivation was more by the defiance of, oh, really? You don't think so, huh? Yeah. Sometimes. And that drove me. Yeah. And I got into that school. And I made sure when I graduated, I sent a note and said, hey, I want to thank you. Because you were really very inspirational in me making that major leap in myself. Thank you. To the person who said you'll never. To the person who ah. said that. Though I never said they said that. I thank them. Yeah. Let them figure out what they said. Right. Sometimes that's the biggest motivator. If somebody approaches you and says, you cannot do it, there's nothing. Well, you know, it's my more... head trash, funny enough, is mine is that fighting ability, which could have its good and bad, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But, right. you know, every emotion that drives us has a very good place. Mm -hmm. But when they manage you, it gets dysfunctional, and sometimes it actually can't hurt you. Right. Okay. You know what? We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to really talk about uh, the book and exactly uh, what it's all about. Do you know Saltz Matkov? Would you like a legal team with over 100 years of experience working for you to defend litigation in the areas of business and contract disputes, employment, transportation and aviation, products and premises liability, intellectual property and construction? We are Saltz Matkov and we can help. From Wall Street to Main Street, we represent Fortune 500 companies and small businesses alike, achieving successful results inside and outside of the courtroom. For a free consultation, contact us at 484-318-7225 or visit us on the web at saltsmatkov.com. That's S-A-L-T-Z-M-A-T-K-O-V.com. Large firm expertise for a fraction of the cost and with all of the personal attention you need. Serving Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Call 484-318-7225 or go to saltsmatkov.com. Want your home to look great for company from out of town? Moving to a new place? Or just want the satisfaction of a clean, healthy home? Whatever your reason, everybody needs to clean. So why not choose the line of cleaning tools that makes your task easier? Quickie is your one-stop cleaning solution with everything you need to get the job done right. Whether you're cleaning one room or the whole house, Quickie has the right tool for the job. It doesn't matter if you prefer a more traditional mop and bucket or if you'd like to save time with a new Quickie spray mop. Quickie has everything you need to get the job done. 
Founded in Philadelphia over 60 years ago, Wiki's commitment to quality and value have helped it grow to the number one cleaning tool in America. It's Quickie and it's clean. Look for Quickie products at Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, ShopRite, and other fine retailers near you. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Welcome back, everyone. We're here at WWDB AM 860 with Women to Watch. And I'm in the studio today with Tish Squilero, who is CEO of Candor Consulting and author of Head Trash 911. And we're going to get right into um, the book and how it came to be and, and, and what it's all about. Um, I guess my first question is, when did the idea for the book come to you? And, and where do you think that came from? Well, it came from working with um, individuals and businesses. So it is written geared towards business decision-making. And it morphed into being more of a life decision-making book, but it caters to people in a business setting. I was working with my co-author, Tim Thomas, uh, on a client together. And we saw the this, this CEO really struggling with making a decision. But they agreed with the decision. They knew it was right for the company. They were ready. They had the script. They believed in it, but at the 11th hour, excuses would start to fly and they would never pull the trigger. And Tim and I were baffled because we knew they were ready and we didn't know how to help them because what our job is to really help coach you through these major changes you're making in your business. And he said, you know, it's that stuff that gets in the way. It's his clutter. It's his head trash. I looked over at him. I said, oh, my God, I I can visually see what the problem is now. I said, I love that title, too. I said, we're going to write a book about that. He says, Tish, what do you know about writing a book? I said, absolutely nothing, but I think <laughs> this is a book. And what year was that? Three years later. So we're in uh, 2013. So 2000, we started writing 2000. it. Okay. And, you know, it took that long because the seven that we've highlighted weren't always the seven at first. I mean, they were in their grouping, but we had 12. But when you whittle down to really what is the core issue, we wanted the core stuff, not the ancillary stuff. Um, and then we had to have it edited and you have to pick the cut. You know, there's so much to go into writing a book that if I did know it in the beginning, and I guess like the rest of my life, if I knew all the steps I'd have to take, I might have talked myself out of it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we hustled through it and we're a great partnership. And, you know, the book's now available on bookstores. But it was a three-year project that really has a lot of life in it because it's real stories. We took examples right. from what we worked with, with companies and individuals who were struggling with decisions. Right. And this decision-making is so real that when people read it, I get emails all the time saying, oh my God, I saw myself 
in that chapter. Yeah, that's so true. When you give scenarios, then people can, you know, can relate. I'm, I'm going to read something I, just to give the listeners a real kind of a, uh, a quick version of what the book is. Um, I thought this explained it really well. Thoughts and emotional patterns that hinder the ability to respond to business in a productive and professional way. When I read that sentence, the, the thing that stuck with me was emotional patterns, because we all, as human beings, have these patterns um, in our head that started from childhood. And as you grow up and you have life experiences, it's areas where you're constantly trying to improve yourself and, and be able to be productive and successful and happy in spite of these emotional patterns. So um, we probably should go through each, each one of them and, and People who are listening will say, you know what, that that is one that's holding me back. And and the first one is anger. And you mentioned that that was something that um, you struggled with. Well, I didn't know I struggled with it, actually, until we wrote the book and created an assessment to kind of help folks believe it's that. Because it is about acceptance. So the book is broken out into chapters per the head trashes. The book's called Head Trash, Cleaning Out the Junk That Stands Between You and Success, because it is those emotional barriers. And they're healthy emotions. That's the so amazing thing of this. They're subtle, everyday emotions that creep up. And when I recite them, I mean, you could probably think about how you just use half of them this morning. Because emotions are things that make who we are. It's right. what sets us apart from the other individuals. So the book is not recommending we should wipe away emotions or get rid of. We're just cleaning and managing. So let me give you the seven. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example of one uh, or two so that the listeners can understand Great. how is that going to impact me. Great. So it's control, mm -hmm. insecurity, arrogance, paranoia, fear, and guilt, with the last being anger. And I'll go to anger first because it's mine Okay. since I have my share of head trash. But I know that anger sometimes takes over my thinking. So as I recited my life, you can see I'm, I'm a fighter mm -hmm. and I don't like someone saying, no, you can't do that or it doesn't exist so we don't have it. It'll make me pause and say, well, wait a second. And we can always figure something out. And that's healthy. That's, that's really what's carved my career out. But I didn't tell you all the stories where I put my foot in my mouth or I put myself in a place that I shouldn't have or I said things that I can't take back right. and they last forever. So anger is the type of emotion that, yeah, it... You are allowed to get upset with someone. You are allowed to fight to something that you don't believe in because it's wrong. But what you don't want to do is use it to hinder someone else. Mm -hmm. You don't want to hold it in and become resentful for mm -hmm. other people. You don't want to use it in a way that scares another, which is body language, not voice. People don't realize that how they sit and stand, cross their legs, hold their arms, roll their eyes, rub their head when they're upset. It's a form of emotion. And if someone is nervous talking to you, you've just made them more nervous. Well, that's a form of anger. You have to control yourself. Right. And an example with that is if someone's saying something to you that they don't like and they start to perch up tall, lean forward with their fists on the table and stare at you, well, that's a form of head trash because you just went from listening to showing them you're really pissed. And that's going to change the whole dynamic. Right. So that's one example. Fear is another one. And I think for fear, we're allowed to be afraid. We're not saying don't be afraid. And in business, you should have some elements of fear so that you don't make impulsive decisions. But we're suggesting you move forward, and fear paralyzes you when it becomes a head trash. It stops you in your tracks to not do anything. It either is the fear of making a bad decision so you make no decision. 
It's the fear of being afraid of hiring people smarter than you so you don't hire people who can help your company grow. Mm -hmm. It's holding your company back because you no longer feel comfortable you can make the decisions, so you just sit and wait. And therein lies the things that stifle a person, a company, or those around you. So we try to give you replacement emotions. So instead of having fear, have caution. Caution's good. When you see a sign that's blinking with yellow lights, it says caution, proceed with, you're still moving. Right. When you see something that says stop, fear, don't move, you're going to stay there. And in life, if you stand still, things will pass you by. That's in a business, if you don't make decisions, you will be beat by the competitor. So that's the way the book is written. It gives you an example, several real-life examples. It gives you replacement ideas and tools and practical advice of what to do about them. Mm -hmm. But it also makes you self-aware of how it not only impacts you, but it's more important to know how it impacts those around you. And it could be your family, could be your business, it could be your team, it could be a relationship. So that's where it gets you. I think that's so key because that helps you avoid uh, the miscommunication. In other words, you can be very self-aware and really be kind of um, working on, on yourself and these emotions. But if it helps you be aware of the person in front of you, then you won't misunderstand something that they're saying. Well, one of the key areas in relationships, and relationships are what businesses are made of. It's partnerships, it's relationships, it's teams. Nothing's an island by itself. Is the ability to communicate and to communicate effectively. I mean, there are people who talk all day, but they're not communicating. Right. They're talking. And they're not even listening. And the biggest part about communicating is actually listening that's right. so that you can have a very effective communication back. Right. And that's the practical part of Head Trash. It's not written to check the box that I wrote a book because it was so grueling and time-consuming and tedious for a person like me to sit still to do it. But it was a lesson. But it really is a way to reach other people. And that's what the most important part for Tim and I is to have a way that in our consulting businesses that we both have, we're not going to get enough folks to want us as their client. But the book, you could pick it up. It's inexpensive. You can get it online. It will change the way you start to think. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about um, arrogance. Ah, That's arrogance a is a fun one. one. Well, you need arrogance to actually um, have the self-confidence to drive, to take risk, to be sure enough about something that you believe in yourself. That's the healthy part of arrogance. It's when you start to only think about yourself, only want your ideas, very subjective to you, my way. And you have to tell everyone that you're the smartest person in the room all the time in every way possible. Then it becomes what we call crossing the line from being a healthy form of arrogance, which is what drives innovation, which is drives creativity, to becoming something where you're alone because no one wants to work with you anymore because you've alienated people because you've shown them that you're the smartest or the best at it, why bother trying? Mm -hmm. No one wants to bond or relate to someone like that. Right, right. Um, control, which I think is probably very connected to arrogance because, you know, the arrogance is believing that you really are better, smarter than the people around you. Um, very often those type of people have a need to control everything. And that's a great point because... Um, we have head trash cocktails that we highlight in the book because we do believe that one by itself um, does cause an impact to have another. And control is a perfect example. If someone has the need to constantly control everything, be in every meeting, look at every document that leaves the room, have the final say, 
design the plan and then follow only that plan. Well, that's a controlling element where you go from having controls as parameters, which is healthy, and certain functions in a business foster control, like finance and legal. You want parameters. So we're not suggesting you have a freewheeling, no boundaries. Right. But when you have to be the one that's in everything, you become an obstacle. And a cause of that is an arrogance. So you can have control counted by arrogance as a, as a hot trash cocktail because the way you mask you're controlling everything is you say you belong in those meetings because you know better. Right, right. So that's where you'll start to see a combination of things come together. Right. You know, and we should mention as we're going through these, these certainly do not only pertain to business. These, what we're talking about pertains to everything, life, family, personal, um, as well as business. Which is a great point because we didn't start the book that way. But as it morphed and we wrote it and people are reading it and saying, oh, my God, I have this with my family. I just did this in this last relationship. I think about this myself personally. It really is a life book that we may have given credible experiences in a business setting because that's where we come from. Right. And we wanted the book to have credibility. But it's about decision making. And as a parent, you make decisions. As a teenager, you make decisions. And our second book that we're writing is about college grads entering the workplace they have to start to make different decisions as they start to leave school and become part of the work environment. And that is about decision-making. And it's the same seven right, right. that we're going to show in that book how it impacts a college grad That's or someone getting ready to graduate with boundaries that are very different than how do you emotionally prepare for work. Correct. Um, second to last is guilt. And... Uh, I think that's a that's a tough one for a lot of people. It is because guilt can come in two forms. And we uncover this as we wrote about it. And we saw it inflict others. You could be guilt-ridden where you have such guilt about making a decision, you make the wrong decision or the decision out of guilt. You're not being objective about it. You're not seeing it for what it is, but you're feeling badly. And that's a form of guilt. Or you inflict guilt on others to manipulate them to do things for you or for others. And you do that by reminding them how good you've been to them and how they owe you because you got them that job. Or didn't I make your bed for the last week and you said you were going to do this for me? Well, that's a form of guilt inflicting on others. And that's another head trash because, yes, I think guilt is important. As an Italian family, you have the guilt of being there every Sunday with spaghetti and meatballs. And if I don't show up, I find out what's wrong with me. Um, but. You know, there's a form of guilt that's good because you should make choices that aren't all about you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to do things for someone else. Right. But when you start to use it where it crosses the line and that's how you get things done or that's how you make tough decisions and you use the excuse, well, Mary and I have been friends forever. Why not make her VP? Those are not good for everybody, including the Mary or including the person that you're inflicting the guilt on. Because in the long run, no one's doing it for the right reasons. you got to separate and find out what the reasons are. Right. In order to be objective. In order to be, and I don't have to go every Sunday now to my parents because they've realized <laughs> that that's not that's not necessarily healthy. That's right. But but mom did say, "Why do you want to leave us?" I don't. It understand. reminded me of my yes. big fat Greek wedding when the dad says, "Why do you want to leave me?" Crying, <laughs> I had the tears. Why are you oh. leaving? I don't understand. What does Pennsylvania have that we don't? That we don't have right here under our roof. Um, and okay, the last one is uh, insecurity, and um, we talk. A lot about that on this show because um, I think young girls especially um, battle with the insecure 
feelings and and self-doubt and um, kind of always looking around to see what everyone else is doing. Um, How do people battle that emotion? So insecurity is probably one of the more difficult um, because it's your voice that you hear that's saying you're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. They're going to find out about you, even if you are doing well. And in most cases, when we came across someone with insecurity, they were actually doing very well. They didn't believe they were. Right. So we have different scenarios in the book where we call one the imposter theory where or the imposter syndrome, where you believe that at any second they're going to knock on your office door, tap you on the shoulder, and say, pack up. You don't belong here. We just found out all about you. Right. And when you live with that feeling all the time, you question yourself. I mean, I know in my life I'm not insecure, but insecurity did cross the line a couple of times because as I formed my businesses, I felt the need for a partner. And it wasn't because I thought that their business was right for my business. It was because I wanted to be with someone to navigate through. And, you know, back in 2009, when I finally decided that I was going to do this on my own, even though it was the same business that I had morphing, my husband had more faith in me and said, you should do this yourself. I have more faith in you than you do. Now stop this. You can go do this. You don't need anyone to be with you. And I haven't looked back since. So we all, even us with our most sincere control and directness that I have in my drive, there are moments where insecurity took over and forced me to make decisions that I was questioning. Yeah. And, and, and I can see where that would be good sometimes because you have to always take a step back sometimes and say, am I doing the right thing? And you're if, allowed if to you're ask not yourself doing that, that. Right. Then you're falling into the maybe the arrogance category if you're not questioning um, some of your choices. Um, things need to be reviewed and and questioned. Right, and it's okay not to know everything. But insecurity allows you to really beat yourself up. And um, there's no one who's worse than you. Ever hear the term, you're your worst enemy? Yes. There's no one worse than you to look in the mirror and tell yourself, you're not pretty. You're not smart enough. You shouldn't be doing this. So you have to fight that. Right. And paranoia, which is the last one, Mm -hmm. is really different than insecurity because paranoia... Hurt your ability to have relationships mm-hmm. in both business or per- personal. Because what you're fearful of is that um, they're out to get you and you don't trust without conviction. You know, there's no reason not to trust. You just assume that everything they're saying was wrong or about you, bad. And that paranoia then sets in and you live that life that those people in the corner down the road are actually whispering at what you just said in that meeting because it was stupid. And that's not what they're saying. They could be having a conversation about what we're going to have for lunch later. I'm really hungry. But in your mind, you've created this. Everyone's out to get me. I need to stay by myself. I can't trust anyone. And again, it's very difficult to build a business, have a relationship, grow a family. If you feel like you're by yourself and you can't trust anyone. Yeah, that's right. Um, We're going to take one last quick break. And when we come back, I'd love to talk all about Candor Consultant and and how your um, business is may be different from some of the other consulting companies out there. Perfect. Do you know Saltz Matkov? Would you like a legal team with over 100 years of experience working for you to defend litigation in the areas of business and contract disputes, employment, transportation and aviation, products and premises liability, intellectual property and construction? We are Saltz Matkov and we can help. From Wall Street to Main Street, we represent Fortune 500 companies and small businesses alike, achieving successful results inside and outside of the courtroom. For a free consultation, contact us at 484-318-7000. 
7225 or visit us on the web at saltsmatkov.com. That's S-A-L-T-Z-M-A-T-K-O-V.com. Large firm expertise for a fraction of the cost and with all of the personal attention you need. Serving Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Call 484-318-7225 or go to saltsmatkov.com. Want your home to look great for company from out of town? Moving to a new place? Or just want the satisfaction of a clean, healthy home? Whatever your reason, everybody needs to clean. So why not choose the line of cleaning tools that makes your task easier? Quickie is your one-stop cleaning solution with everything you need to get the job done right. Whether you're cleaning one room or the whole house, Quickie has the right tool for the job. It doesn't matter if you prefer a more traditional mop and bucket or if you'd like to save time with a new Quickie spray mop. Quickie has everything you need to get the job done. Founded in Philadelphia over 60 years ago, Quickie's commitment to quality and value have helped it grow to the number one cleaning tool in America. It's Quickie and it's clean. Look for Quickie products at Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, ShopRite, and other fine retailers near you. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face to face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. My name is Sue Rocco. I'm in the studio today with Tish Squalero, who is CEO of Candor Consulting and also author of Head Trash 911, which we've been talking about all morning here. Um, I, I did neglect to ask you where the name Candor came from, because I always think, you know, the most important part of anyone's business is their story. So how did that all come about? And it's a great story because there's always a story, isn't there, right? It wasn't, it's a simple name, it's one word, but it really describes me. So when we were forming the business from the partnerships that I unwound, I needed a name that would actually give people a feeling of what is it all about? Because consultants, there are a lot of us mm-hmm. and we all have the same things we do. It's our style and approach, right? That's right. what separates me from another talented executive that's going to be coaching or giving leadership development. It's our style. Mm -hmm. And I hired a firm to actually do this. So I could not come up with this name on my own. We hired a marketing firm that was able to do an interview of all the folks that were going to work on the team. And at the very end, they said, you are candor. I go, the bird? No, not condor, candor. (laughs) I was like, oh, candor. Okay. Um, I could see that. And it just hit me. And I do everything by instinct. So it, I liked it. I did not like it. So I'm very good with, I can make very good decisions very quickly because either I hate it and you'll know, but if I don't hate it, there's a good chance that we're going to like it. Yeah. Just I'm getting used to it. 
Um, so you do speak with a lot of candor. I love it. It's- I do, and sometimes it does create a challenge because I think in the world of building a business, some people are not as comfortable with someone being as candor mm-hmm. and as candid. But if you do it, if you speak with candor with a smile, I think it's very effective. Which I do. I mean, I am never in a position of authority when I'm working or even making uh, a relationship with someone or forming it. It's it's more about I just want you to know here's what you're getting so there's no surprises. I don't like surprises and I don't like to be disappointed. So I'm assuming most don't too. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather put the cards out. But a lot of what I work on in candor with clients is tough messaging. How do I deliver the tough message to the CEO that's really outgrown their role? They're not in the right role anymore. Or their nephew can't be the SVP. And now they have to go back and tell the family. Or the design of the group they started with the 20 people uh, when they first started. Now that they're 500 people can't all be at the senior table. Those are tough decisions. And, you know, it takes someone who has probably my resilience to hold you accountable, mm-hmm. but I don't make you hate me. I mean, I have to say most of my clients, because I can't say all, I don't know if all, but most always renew and want me to stay along to the point where there's been one general who says, look, I'm going to make a referral for this woman, Tish, to come work with you, but you can't get rid of her. It's what happens. <laughs> she stays, and I'm just warning you, build in somewhere where there's an end date. Because you can't get rid of her. Because I am very accommodating. I'm there for you. So, um, But I'm also there for you. So remember that. When you said we met and you wanted this, this, and this, when it gets tough, I'm going to pull that sheet out and remind you that I'm here for this, this, and this. And I don't forget. Yeah. And you want them to be successful. You, you, you're really working hard and you care about seeing results. Well, it's interesting. I really look at life with givers and takers. And we all have our takers And we all have our givers. I'm a giver in that I love giving. I love giving presents. I'm very awkward getting one. I love um, throwing surprises, but I don't like having them. My husband says I'm the hardest person to take care of when I'm sick because you can't take care of me. And it's one of those things. So I really love seeing you succeed. I love you conquering your enemies. I love you overcoming your fears. I like doing that. That actually makes me feel good. So this is a good position for me. Mm -hmm. I never take credit for whatever is happening with an executive's change or their business, even though I know a lot of it is happening because I'm pushing and probing and doing. I don't care. I don't really have an ego. And people think I do because I'm pretty direct, but I don't have an ego. It's not about me. It's about the satisfaction of watching you change and develop. I don't even need to tell you you're doing it. I know when you're doing it because you don't need me anymore. And people say, well, when does our engagement end? I said, when I'm comfortable for you and you like seeing me and we're going to have a casual conversation, it's probably winding down (laughs) because I am not your friend. (laughs) That's right. I'm here to help you. And we could remain friends. Right. But if you're talking about engagements, that's when you know maybe I should work with another group or maybe someone else at the company. I think you're okay now. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about who you do work with. For the listeners, you know, who who perhaps are needing some guidance right now, what types of businesses, what types of companies, organizations? Is there a niche or, you know, would you basically help anyone who's in need? Well, I mean, I'd like to put a little niche out there because I go by my experiences. So technology companies and digital media and more of the startup early stage companies are embraced by me because we're going through those tough phases. Um, where they have to really look hard at at themselves and the people they've chosen for the early part to see whether or not they're actually scalable for the business. That's a shift. But I've worked with very large companies. 
um, that are, you know, in the billions and publicly traded, but I'm in a unit of the source. I may not be at the, at the C level. I'll be at group functions like a president or a GM because they're running a business. It's always about the business's health that I'm working on. So any size company, um, you know, it's, it's about when you're ready. I always say that I meet folks, I offer my services in a way in which you get a little time with me with no cost because I'm helping you figure out if you're ready. Because if we're hiring me, you're going to have change. And if you're not ready for it, you're not going to like it. Right. So give me an example of some of the things that you do when you go into a company. Sure. Um, in some cases, it's really about looking at the leadership team. And I've alluded to it a little bit because it's a big thing for CEOs who have really founded their businesses with friends and colleagues that they trust. And now they're really onto something. And their company is no longer 20 people, but maybe 100 people. Mm-hmm. But they're putting those same folks in senior roles because, well, they're their inner circle. And they're guilty because they feel like, well, they've been with me when I started. How do I now hire someone that's going to ma- manage them and it's not me? Mm-hmm. So I work a lot on that. I work a lot with very smart people who really do well individually and don't play well in the sandbox. So you'll have leadership teams that are very bright and very capable and very successful in their own right. But yet when you put them in a room together, it's chaos. And Co- the person, competitive, maybe. well, it's competitive and it's not necessarily looking at the business from the greater packaging. Mm-hmm. It's looking at it from your sales function, your account function, your operations function, because that's really your focus. And it's a transition to look at it from the business side and realize that that may impact you and your team in a way you may not want it to, but it's better for the business. Mm -hmm. So through change and growth. And I work a lot there too, because that is where you'll get a lot of the head trash. Because it's not that they don't believe in the business or know what's right and wrong. They know. But their voices in their head, that trash comes with them. So when they're sitting in a room and they're making decisions out of their own emotion, that's causing what we call the head trash paradox. When everybody agrees to make the wrong decision and leaves the room making the wrong decision because in that room no one was willing to put the issue on the table and they all agreed to agree that it's the wrong decision, but they go out and do it. Right, right. So do are you finding that um, a way to get started with any client is to actually review the head trash um, that you've developed, the theory, I guess, before you start to approach some of the activities that you want them to go through? In other words, I would imagine some there might be some CEOs, leaders, corporate people that may not think that this has anything to do with being successful. Yeah. And uh, do you find you have to kind of get over that hurdle to, to, to convince them that they need to do a little bit of self-reflection first? Yeah, and the book is written with um, a lot of advice, but the thing we ask you to come with is you're willing to accept it and willing to do something about it. So when I meet clients, I don't push on them any theory yet or my book or my process. Okay. I have there. a casual conversation. I'll probably be able to pick out and see triggers, but I don't raise them. I try to see whether or not the timing and the issue that you have at hand is ready. Okay. And then build from there. I don't start off with my my foregone conclusion of here's how we're going to do it. Right, an analysis. In yeah, words. because yeah. I, that's not me, first of all, mm-hmm. and I don't work that way. I'm more informal. Mm-hmm. But I do think that with the building of the relationship and the trust, these things then naturally come out. I'll recommend a profile on your behavior. I'll recommend my book because I'm seeing something. I'll recommend, you know, reading a passage somewhere that I read that I think is going to be relevant to where you're making your decisions. Mm-hmm. I write a lot, so I have... Um, you know, information out there, even on my own website, 
about, you know, things that other companies go through. Go take a look at some of those white papers because I bet you're feeling the same thing that the other five CEOs feel. Yeah, right. So there's a way for them to become self-educated because when they get ready to say, okay, Tish, I'm going to put my ego and my intelligence aside for a moment and I'm going to look hard at myself in the mirror. Now what? And my team in the mirror. Now what? I want to ultimately build the best company, but I realize that maybe I'm a problem. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that's, that's where we start. That's great. Um, we should mention, and one of my questions was going to be, do you have any um, plans to write another book? And you do. Can you we do. You that? know, um, of course, I do nothing small, as my co-author would say. Tish, can't we just write a book and just put it on the website? I go, no, no, no. We're hiring a PR agency. We're getting it out there. This is a <laughs> message that needs to be heard. I do nothing small. And I fall. But when I'm trying, I shoot for the moon. So I think the reaction has been so well received as it being less about just business and more about emotion and decision making that we've already started collaborating. And our second book is on college graduates entering the workplace. Because as a business owner, I see it. As a woman in businesses, I see the struggle of those interns coming in, those new hires coming in. I see the schools are not necessarily knowing how to prepare them. This is not about writing your resume. This is about getting emotionally ready to take feedback from your boss, different than critique on the paper you just had. This is losing the soccer game versus not getting the pitch. It's the same stuff. Right. What I think college kids don't remember is you take you with you when you leave. You don't graduate and all of a sudden become matured in all the areas that you need to to face the world. We kind of help through school by giving you ways to do it, but now you're on your own. And when you look in the mirror, all those things that pissed you off and held you back in school are going to magnify out there. So that's what the next book is about. We're trying to get a university to sponsor with us because I want a university voice. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing a couple of focus groups with students who are going through this right now to make sure we're hitting those areas. And we're going to write it a little differently with more interaction uh, uh, with um, video so they can see it. Because I want to get their attention how serious this is, that who you go and be is really your choice. Right. And you can make that. That's the one choice we probably have. That's there are right. a lot of things that get made for us, and you know, we have to live with that. But who you are is the one choice you have to live with forever, and you make them. Yeah. And we're really focused on that next. Yeah, and I, I really like the idea of the visual, the videos. that You have a video on your website that I think just, it's very captivating, and, and it's just individuals. Um, it's little scenarios about people talking about the different voices in their head that hold them back. And people see that, and they say, oh, my gosh, that's me. Yeah, our website, which is headtrash911.com, headtrash911 offers two things. One, the video, so you can visibly see it. We also created something called the Head Trash Index, which is a free online survey. If you have 15 minutes, it's 28 questions. Instantly upon completion, you will get your Head Trash Index, which is this numeric score on all seven, which ones you're plagued by. And then we put a severity scale out that shows you what it could look like in decision-making if you have that as a Head Trash so that's your first step. I mean, you don't even have to buy the book. Not that I'm saying don't buy the book, but <laughs> buy the book. Go to the website, Head Trash 911. If I've said anything that resonates, go take that index. It's free. No one does anything with it. I send you a thank you note for doing it, but I don't solicit you because I really want you to actually start to think about how you make decisions because it does impact others. So yeah. to me, it's about the domino effect. Right. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, real quick, we just have a few minutes left. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you um, is what advice would you give to a woman who is perhaps looking to get back into the workforce after being home, raising some children, and um, something is holding her back? What, what bit of advice would you give to 
to help her take that first step and believe that whatever her ideas are for, for a business, whether big or small, um, is worthwhile. And I wonder if you can just leave the list. It's funny. Someone that. asked me, are you writing a book about entering the workplace as a, as a post-mommy? I said, you know, it's very interesting. I bet there are those motions in your mind that stop you. One is you don't have to invent something. And I, I think if you put that pressure on yourself to come out there and create a business, I'm not saying don't, but I'm also saying it's okay to jump into the workforce first. Mm-hmm. Because that's what I did. I mean, even though I started the dog business, I had to take odd jobs to get to where I am. And I do think getting back into the work environment is, a, is, a, is an important element so that you can feel confident that you can do this. Mm-hmm. And then see what you like. I mean, I do believe if you have a passion for something, nothing's going to stop you. And don't think you have to be great at it. Because you get great at something. You, don't, you aren't great at things to start That's with. Right. You get great at stuff. I've made tons of mistakes. I've put my foot in my mouth a million times. And then there are times I've said the perfect thing that made such change. So I'm okay with failing. So be okay with that too. And don't expect too much from yourself as you ease into it because it's an easement. But definitely get out there. There's a value add in each of us. That's right. And sometimes we don't know what it is. That's right. And we're not supposed to know. Sometimes we just figure it out. Mm -hmm. But the first step is walking out the door and taking that job. And no job is too small for you. And no ego should get in your way. Just be happy that you're getting out and integrating again. You'll figure your way out. That's right. That's right. That's great advice. Um, that's going to be it for, for this uh, week of Women to Watch. And it always goes too fast. I feel I could talk to you, Tish, um, all day. Um, but you do have a wonderful place to head to after the show. So I'm excited for you. And uh, we'll be here next week on WWDB. AM860 with Women to Watch. Again, my name is Sue Rocco. And if you have any questions for me or any of my guests, please feel free to send an email to srocco233 at gmail. Thanks, everyone, and have a great week.